Amen. Now I ask you to remain standing just a little bit longer as we read our second scripture reading. As we continue our series through the letter to the Hebrews, we conclude chapter 11 and begin chapter 12. We're going to focus at the last couple verses of chapter 11 and the first two verses of chapter 12, but we'll get a running start by beginning in Hebrews 11, verse 32. This is found on page 1196. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that the Christian life is a long-distance run, and we need strength. We grow weary, and at times we grow very faint of heart and even toy with the temptation to give up. Lord, we need your strength and grace every day, and we need it today. We pray that you would renew our strength, that we would rise up like eagles, that we would run and not grow weary, and that, Lord, we would persevere in your strength all the way to the end. Grant us this grace now through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name. Well, as I was thinking about the metaphor of running and uh, this idea of running with endurance, the, the, the memory that immediately came into my head was middle school phys ed. And they would do this thing every month or so that they, that they called around the world. And basically it was for the entire 45-minute period, you would be running around this huge long-distance course. <laughs> and as you can imagine... You got tired towards the end. You were tempted to just say, ah, that's enough running. 
I'm just going to walk the rest of this. After all, lots of people were just walking. And it's that feeling after you've been going for a long time of just like, whew, I am so tired. That is not just something we experience in running. It's something we experience in many, many spheres of our lives. Kids, when school gets tough, especially when there's that one class that you're really behind in, you just want to give up. It's just not motivating to keep going. It's hard. Or we can be tempted to give up in marriage and just feel like, I just can't do this anymore. Or on good disciplines like exercise. Or spiritual disciplines like Bible reading and prayer. And even coming here each Lord's Day when we don't feel like sometimes we're getting that much out of it. It's not really doing that much for us, we feel like. We can be tempted to give up. We can be tempted to give up in our battle against temptation when desires just feel so incredibly strong. Lust, bitterness, anger, greed, overindulgence, these things are powerful forces. And we can feel tempted at times. It's just too strong for us. I fought it and I fought it and I fought it and I just don't have the strength to keep fighting anymore. And the larger message that we can start to feel as we're going through these tests of endurance is this. We can start to feel to ourselves the Christian life is impossible. Maybe some super Christians can do it, but I can't cut it. I can't persevere. I've tried. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. And it's just plain impossible. And I feel utterly awful right now, and I just want to do whatever it takes to get out, just to to feel good again. And I don't care if it's something that God doesn't want. Have you ever felt that way? Are you feeling that way today, maybe? (laughs) Don't need a show of hands. But if you have felt this way, or if you are feeling this way right now, this, brothers and sisters, this passage was written for you. It's written for us. What's going to keep us pressing us pressing on through those long slogs, those really tough seasons at the end of the run, at the, the hard points of life? What's going to keep us going? We're going to see two things today that's going to really encourage us for endurance. First is we're going to find the amazing gifts that have been given to us in this new covenant age, this age of the Spirit, this age that we are now living in thanks to Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see first in verses 39 through 40 of uh, chapter 11. And then we're going to think about Jesus, how he's our forerunner, as he, how, how he has already made it to the end of his race. That's what we're going to see in chapter 12, 1 through 2, how he who's already made it to the finish line is going to help us to make it ourselves. And then we'll think about, okay, how do we digest this? How do we, how do we put these gifts practically to use to endure and even to thrive when we're feeling really weary. So, we've just finished this big list of um, the saints of the Old Testament, right? Chapter 11, that's what it's been about. These Old Covenant saints who've gone before us, and we've seen how they've done some really amazing things, and we've seen how every single one of those amazing things that they've done is by faith. Let's never forget it. The Old Testament saints who truly believe they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They had the same faith as we do. Abraham's faith, that's our faith. Jesus is his hope and our hope. By faith, they were made strong in weakness. They became mighty in war. They put armies to flight. 
and did all these other things. And they even, by faith, made it to the end of their race. And that's what verse 39 is now saying to us. They have received their commendation. They made it all the way to the end. These, are, these, are, these Old Testament saints are the ones who have heard the Savior say, Abraham and Sarah, well done, my good and faithful servants. Well done, Moses and David. Well done, all my good and faithful servants in the Old Testament. That's what a commendation is, right? Praise for a job, well done. And yet, you're thinking about that, wow, that's amazing. They received their commendation. They made it all the way to the end. And yet the author says, there's one thing they did not receive. Look at verse 39. There's something that they lacked. Yet they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What is that about? (laughs) Well, let's look at verse 11, verse 13. This will help us out. Chapter 11, verse 13 says, Help, uh, uh, he says, these all died in faith, all these old covenant saints died in faith. And again, it's got this language of not receiving. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Basically, both of these verses are saying the same thing. And try to digest what it's saying, because it's a very important thing. And if you get this, you you gain a huge window into the whole point of the Old Testament. What both of these verses are saying is that even when the nation of Israel got really, really big, lots of people, right? Even when they had the covenant that God made with them at Sinai, even when they entered into the land of promise and possessed it as their own, even when they got the king, King David, And he was reigning on the throne, even when they got the temple, and God came down and dwelt with them. Even then, they had received the promises in some respect in a shadowy way. But what these verses are saying is they didn't receive what those promises were ultimately about. They received something, and even Solomon can say, now all that God has promised has been fulfilled in his day as the, the, the... presence of God has now come down, right? And they're all celebrating. And yet, what is it that they actually received? What is it that those old covenant saints at the very best moments of their history received? It was only types and shadows. Only shadows. Like little models of the ultimate realities that God really was meaning when he made all those promises. Those only came, those ultimate realities only came when Jesus came. Only in Jesus do we finally start to see ultimate things breaking into history. And by ultimate things, I mean things that will never be surpassed. Things that will be for all eternity in the new creation. Jesus is what all of history is waiting for. It's what all of those little models and shadows in the Old Testament were pointing towards. Jesus is the ultimate king. Jesus is the ultimate priest who made the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. That's why we don't do sacrifices anymore. In his rising from the dead, he received the ultimate land, which is the new creation, and he consecrated the ultimate temple, which is in heaven and is going to come down to earth. And in that temple, he now sits on the ultimate throne at his father's right hand. 
And all of this means that the ultimate and permanent covenant, the better covenant, the new covenant that surpasses the one at Sinai, is now here. And if you get what I just said, Jesus brought the ultimate things that replaces all the types and shadows, then you have understood the entirety of Hebrews 1 through 10. That's what the whole part of Hebrews 1 through 10 is about. It's all about, hey, you know Moses, he's great, but now we have someone better than Moses. You know, you know, this receiving of the land that happened back in Joshua's day. Guess what? You guys are getting a better land. You know the, you know, the sacrifices they had to keep on offering, right? All that stuff. You know all that stuff. Now you have the ultimate things. They've arrived. They've entered history through Jesus Christ. And so this is now the age not of shadows, but of ultimate realities. Even in Solomon's day, even in the high point of Israel's history, there was a greater king coming, and we now have that king. And there will never be a greater king than Jesus. Even in Solomon's day, there's going to be a greater king than him. Now that we have Jesus, there will be no greater king. And this, just side note here, this is part of the horrible heresy of Mormonism and Islam. Both of those cults or religions say, part of what's so evil about them is that they're saying is, oh yeah, Jesus, yeah, he has some status in our understanding, but, you know, there was somebody better who came after them. Someone who told us more and gave us the fuller picture, you know, whether Muhammad or Joseph Smith, that is heresy. That goes directly against Hebrews 1.1. In those last days, he spoke to us in various ways, the prophets, in the, last, in, in the previous days, that's how he spoke. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, through whom he has brought about redemption, and that Son who now sits at the right hand of the Father. There will never be anyone greater than Jesus, never be a greater revelation than him. And so, as we're thinking about this, about how the Old Testament saints, they were commended for their faith, but they did not receive the ultimate realities. Those things would only come to them with us, with the age that we now are presently living in right now. We are now living in the climax of the grand epic story that God is telling in history. And so, how should we respond to this, this amazing like dawning of the climax of history in Jesus Christ for us, the church, how should we respond? 12.1. Let us, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those old covenant saints, let's now run with endurance. And so as we think about those Old Testament saints and their faith, it should motivate us. And this is, this is the whole way in which if you're tracking with the big theology things I was just saying, it becomes very practical for endurance in this present life. Here's how. Think about and you're doing a sporting event, you're playing soccer or um, running or whatever, or even just like when you're playing music, or you have something you're doing and there's other people there who are loving you, who love you and are cheering you on, that's a great encouragement, is it not? We are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, the Old Testament saints, who are cheering us on. And here's how they encourage us. First, they encourage us by their example, like we've just been seeing all the past sermons, right? The encouragement of their faith that they, they are showing us, here's what it means to walk by faith. Here's what it means to not trust in our own eyes, our own understanding. And by the way, what they're showing us is that the Christian life is not impossible. They've lived it. They've made it. 
and try to, try to think of it. This is, this is why it's so important for us when we're feeling like particularly in a dark place to remember that what we're experiencing, whatever it is, is not unique to us. There have been other brothers and sisters who have been through similar things. Maybe not the exact same thing, but similar things. And they have endured. And that's part of where, part of how we can get ourselves out of our funks is reading the great biographies of the saints. Reflecting on them. Remembering, hey, God brought them through this. He can do that for me. But then we need to think about this. Okay, they made it all the way to the end. That's awesome. That's a great example to us. They made it all the way to the end, and they just were living in the time of shadows. We have so much even more now. Right? Think about what they were able to do with far less than we possess today. And then you start getting really encouraged. Wow, God has really equipped me <laughs> for what I have to face today. And it's funny, a lot of Christians have talked to me over the years, told me, oh, I just wish that God would, you know, speak in an audible voice, or I just wish that, like, you just tell me what to do, or um, I just wish that I would see some miracles, like, you know, the parting of the Red Sea or something like that. Wouldn't that be awesome? And man, doesn't it stink to kind of be living in this current time where we don't see any of that stuff? Well, it is true that God has turned down the audiovisual aids that he gave to the Old Testament people of God. He has turned down those audiovisual aids. We don't want, we should not expect audible voices or visions or splitting of the Red Sea. But then we have to reread chapter 11, verse 40 again because it really reorients us. It says, but God has provided something better for us. We have something better now. The new covenant order that we have now, it may not be as flashy as the old covenant order. It may not have like all these big whiz-bang, wow-wee, look at that fire coming down on that tabernacle or on that temple. We have something better. We have something better. We now have the entire new covenant order in all of its extraordinary gifts. We now have the risen Christ reigning on the throne as a man for us, praying for us. We now have the Holy Spirit, not in the temple or the tabernacle, but actually in our hearts, empowering us to do what's right and to say no to ungodliness. We have the Spirit who is decisively broken sin's bondage. So we are not slaves of sin. We now have the Holy Spirit inside of us, enabling us to actually understand the Scriptures as grace to us, this is something that way surpasses all the special effects of the Old Testament. This is something better that God has given to us. We have the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus completely atoning for all our guilt so that, as I say, every single service up here, you are forgiven decisively, irreversibly. You are forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In other words, we have so much that the Old Testament saints, if they had, would they just had in shadowy mode. And, and so, as we think about this, this should really encourage us. If God gave them the grace to persevere and to endure through so many trials with all of their shadows, will he not certainly do that for you and for me? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. But we need to keep looking to what Jesus has done. 
And that brings us to the second point. We have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. They're all cheering us on. They're all saying, you can do this in the power of Jesus Christ. And then we look at Jesus. And what's amazing is Jesus comes at the end of this list of men of faith, people of faith. And what I want you to think about is this, that we have on our side the ultimate man of faith. Jesus Christ. Now, that might seem kind of strange to hear, right? Wait, Jesus is God. He doesn't need faith, right? Well, he is God, but he is also fully man. He's not a sinful man, so he doesn't need faith for the same reason we need it to be forgiven. But think about this. As a man, he still faced the same challenge that we do of persevering through great trials, especially the cross, and persevering through that in hope that God would be faithful to his promise. So think about this. Jesus, he was faced with the cross. And the good news is, is that he did endure that final, the final, you know, push, what's called the kick at the end of the, um, at the end of a race. He pushed through that final, final part of his race, the cross, and he did it because he was trusting his father. Think about it. Jesus, he was facing unspeakable shame and suffering at the hands of evil people. And what would everybody be th- around him thinking as they saw him on the cross? He's lost. And yet Jesus knew, and this is part of why he had the strength to go to the cross, that God would be faithful. He entrusted, him to a righteous, entrusted himself to a righteous judge who judges justly, First Peter chapter 2, entrusted himself. In other words, he's trusting his father to vindicate him. And so he looked at the cross and he despised the shame of it, it says. He looked at it and said, yes, this will be shameful, but I despise that shame in comparison to what my father has promised me. He, he did what all of these Old Testament saints that we heard about before did, but way better. So think about Moses. He numbered himself with the Israelites, right? And he counted the shame of being counted as an Israelite slave as greater treasure, that reproach is greater treasure than all the treasures of Egypt. Well, Jesus numbered himself with the transgressors, us. And he considered that, that obedience to the Father, as greater treasure than all the abundance that he could have accumulated in this world. Or think about Noah, right? He constructed this ark that got people through the flood of water, the judgment of God's wrath on the old world. Jesus has constructed the new and better ark, the church, that's going to get us through the greater coming flood of God's fiery wrath. By, By his faith, Jesus put to flight an even greater army than all the armies of Canaan, Satan, and all his hosts. You get the idea. In every respect, Jesus' work of faith, of trusting his Father, was greater than all the works of faith that have come before. And again, I want to defend this idea of Jesus as the ultimate man of faith and clarify what I mean by it. What exactly do I mean? Well, look at 12.2. It says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of faith. Okay, perfecter we'll talk about in a moment, but let's talk about the word founder. It's actually a very cool word. 
And I think it's better translated not so much founder as pioneer. Trailblazer. He is sort of, it's putting him in the category of like a Daniel Boone type figure, right? Someone who's blazing a trail that nobody else has gone through. Or James T. Kirk, going boldly where no man has gone before. What's this place that he's gone that no man has gone before? The amazing thing is that he has gone as our forerunner, as the pioneer, into the most holy place in heaven. He became, in his resurrection from the dead, his perfect sacrifice and perfect obedience, and his resurrection from the dead, he became the pioneer, the first human being to enter the most holy place of God, not in the little shadowy temple on earth, but in the ultimate temple in heaven. Now that is a big idea. Where did those Old Testament saints go when they died? Didn't they go to heaven? Didn't they go into the most holy place of God? Well, actually, and this is maybe for further discussion, but we read in Old Testament of them going to this place called Sheol, this, this gray, shadowy place where their souls just were kind of at rest but not really doing anything. When Jesus rose from the dead, he became the first man to enter into God's presence, carrying his own blood as the sacrifice and leading in his, in his train every Old Testament saint who had gone before him as his victory procession. Jesus Christ is the first man. And that's part of why the temple, the, the, uh, the curtain, this huge, thick curtain was miraculously ripped in two when Jesus rose, when Jesus died and was raised from the dead. He ripped in two that, that shadowy curtain to show in a figurative way that he has made a way into the most holy place. And if you get all of this, you get this, that Jesus has made it to the end of his race. That's the whole point of where chapter 12, 2 ends. He's now seated, he's done running, he's seated at the right hand of his Father. He's made it to the end. And when you think about that glory, and you think about how Jesus was thinking, okay, there's going to be this glory of where I'm going to be, where the Father's promised me to be in heaven, next to him, with all my people surrounding me. And he's looking at his, the, the shame of the cross. He's like, ha, totally worth it for this. It gives us strength then for our sufferings as well. If the cross is the worst thing a human being has ever existed, has ever experienced, which it is, the, the exposure, being naked, jeered at, tortured, the physical pain, and of course the wrath of God on you. And yet Jesus could look at that and say, totally worth it for this, the glory that's about to be revealed, the glory that I'm going to purchase here, my people being with me, enjoying God with me in heaven. Will we not likewise want to make the same judgment about our sufferings? Will we not look at our sufferings and say about them, I despise the shame of this for the sake of the glory that is to come. And by the way, we heard about that great cloud of witness cheering us on. You realize at the center of that crowd is Jesus Christ. And we have to clarify the image, right? Because our parents could be there on the sideline cheering us on and we could still lose the race, right? 
we could still lose, but not with Jesus. Look again, Jesus is not just the pioneer of our faith, the guy who makes it there first and says, hey, you can do it. He doesn't just stay up there and say, well, good luck, guys, following me. No, it says he's also the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who helps us to make it all the way to the end and lends to us all of the strength and all of the power that he himself has, the power that got him there in the first place. He then pours out and gives to you so that you are more than adequate for all that you face. So this brings us to our final point. How do we respond to all of this? How do we, how do we like live this, right? All these Old Testament saints, with all the, the, the little resources, relatively speaking, that they had, they made it to the end. Jesus, the forerunner, the first man to enter the most holy place, he made it. How will we make it? We must run with endurance. And I think this, if you're struggling with endurance, if you're struggling with giving up, this passage has multiple encouragements for you. It says to you, first, please remember Jesus Please keep your eyes on him. Please remember how he looked at the cross and said, I despise the shame of this because I know the glory that's promised to me. Please look at that and know that that is the faith that Jesus has given in your heart. That's what he put inside of us. Remember what faith is? Taking God at his word. That's what Jesus gave to you so that you can make it there as well. Set your eyes on him. Set your eyes on the glory of being with him. Look, if we're just like looking at our life and we're thinking all the time, this is what your brain is cycling through, like all my regrets, the things, the losses that I feel, the people that I feel like I've totally just messed up, I haven't done right by them, and there's no way to make it right again. Um, Just all the, the, the enticements of sin. If that's what we're just sort of cycling around and around and around on, Yeah, those things are going to become really big in our eyes, and God's going to be very, very small. But if we set our eyes on Jesus and on the glory of what he's going to bring and on the glory that he's promised to us, then those other things start to become very small and realize, okay, that was painful, but it's nothing compared to what Jesus is going to give me. It's not worthy comparing. The glory that's to be revealed is not worthy to be compared to to what, what what God has done for us far surpasses anything that we have suffered in this life. Last thing, setting our eyes on Jesus means we need to dump the unnecessary cargo of life. Jonah and all those guys on the, on the ship, remember the storm was coming, and, and they were like, oh no, what do we do? They're throwing over their precious cargo. Why were they doing that? Well, it's either get rid of the cargo or we sink. That is what you face, brothers and sisters, in this perseverance, this race of perseverance. You're going to have to set aside every weight, 12-1. And that every weight language, I think, refers to the not necessarily sinful good things, but the things that are distracting. The good things that are distracting. Remember how Jesus, in the parable of the soils, he says, here's a seed that grows up, but then what happens? It gets choked out by the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world. What are the cares of this world that are choking out your fruitfulness? What are the kind of unnecessary fun stuff that just plain, you know, it's not necessarily inherently sinful, but it really is keeping you. It's like an encumbrance. It's like, you know, you're running with your backpack or running with baggage, right? 
and you're not really able to sprint for Jesus. Why not? Well, you're, you're spinning your wheels, spending tons of time doing what? In my case in college, it was video games, like just hours and hours and so much time and thought resources just de dedicated to this thing that really wasn't, it's not like inherently bad, but it's also an encumbrance. We need to cast that aside, and we need to cast aside the sin that clings. So there's non-sinful encumbrances, and then there's sinful encumbrances that those really need to go. Sin clings. It can be the kind of thing that says to you, you can't live without me. You're not going to be able to make it without me. And we need to say, oh, yes, I will, in the power of Jesus Christ. Away, Satan. What are the things that you're carrying right now that are just not pleasing to God? Where you're saying to yourself, I, I really just need this comfort. I need this, this thing just kind of helps me feel good again. And you're making an idol out of that thing. You won't give it up. You don't need that thing, brother or sister. You don't need it. Jesus is sufficient. You do not need your sin. Cast it out. Cast it aside today. It's amazing, right, how much stuff we accumulate as we go through life, right? You go through your backpack or your purse or something that's been a long time. You're like, wow, I was carrying this everywhere. <laughs> what are the sins that are weighing you down that you've been carrying around needlessly? Jesus set you free from it. Cast it off and discover the joy of running with perseverance in the strength of Jesus Christ alone, the race all the way to the end. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's awfully difficult to cast off precious cargo that we really, really like and don't want to get rid of. Lord, show us those encumbrances that are holding us down, whether they're sinful or not, and help us to be willing to cut out those good things, if they are good, and especially those sinful things, for the sake of the greatest thing, which is you and the prize of the upward call of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for all those saints who've gone before us, and thank you for you yourself, the, the true man, the great man who truly trusted his Father's promise and led the way, and who even now is strengthening us for our race. We pray that we would be faithful to the end, and we know that when we get to the end, it will be all by your strength, not because we're so persevering, but because you are so persevering with us so that you get all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name.